Hey everyone, back again. Today we're continuing on with Spinoza's Ethics from Part 3, and this is our Part 3. Uh, his Part 3 titled On the Origin and Nature of the Emotions. So, you know what to do. If you happen to have stumbled into this episode without seeing Episodes 1 and 2, go do that first, and go check out the 350 or however many episodes I have up on all the platforms. Uh, you can also all go find me on TikTok, which is probably the newest thing. Anyways, yeah, without further ado, let us continue on the Spinoza journey with part three. So here, he's what he's doing here is going to be considering the role of the emotions and situating them within God's will, God being nature, and what role the emotions really serve. So at the time, you know, Spinoza writing this in the 1600s, it was kind of radical for him to actually be giving the emotions as much credence as he does now, because really, at the time, before him, within these types of philosophical circles, the emotions were seen primarily as a hindrance to one's development. Now, he doesn't go that far. Instead, what he says is that some emotions are will do that, will hinder your growth, will hinder your capacity for action, which is what is absolutely necessary for him, while others will permit it. So here he's going to give us an investigation into a whole range of emotions, what they do, whether they're good for us, whether they're bad, what they are, and so on. So most people who have thought about the emotions have done so by situating humans outside of nature, where some display good emotions and some display bad emotions. So the idea here is that before Spinoza, or the type of people that Spinoza is criticizing, believed that emotions could actually be like outside of nature, and it's because of that that they were evil, like they came from somewhere else. Now, as we know, Spinoza equates God and nature, and doesn't think that there's anything really outside of nature, but there are elements of it that work better for us than others. So he's not saying like, we can ever be outside of nature or, you know, we can call something bad because it doesn't uh, completely comply with nature. That's not possible. Instead, we have to accept that everything exists according to nature. Nothing just poofs out of nowhere. But some of these things are going to be more, uh, I guess, more useful to us than others. So, for example, Descartes, or Descartes suggested the mind should reign over and control the emotions as something that is inherently evil, which is a drastic thing to say. But as we know from Descartes, and we know the idea of dualism, where there is a mind and body split, Descartes gives privilege to the mind over that of the body, where it is the mind that remains after you have doubted everything. You cannot doubt away your mind because that requires your mind uh, to do, to actually doubt. Whereas you can doubt your body, you can doubt your desires and drives and everything like that, but you can't doubt your mind. So what we see here is a privileging of the mind over the body. We see a privileging as well of rationality over irrationality of the emotions. So for Spinoza and Spinoza's words, the emotions, therefore of hatred, anger, envy, considered in themselves, follow from the same necessity and virtue of, na and of nature as other individual things. So we must study them like any other individual thing, instead of just relegating them to some subjugated zone where they are not to be really considered seriously as actually being 
a hindrance to us. So here we move into our definitions. As you know, I want, you know, if I was listening to myself, I probably wouldn't listen to each of these parts, like, as they came out, I'd probably wait for all of them if I was so inclined to listen to someone ramble on about Spinoza's ethics. I would wait till all the episodes were out and download them. So I, let me know, actually, if you're listening to this on YouTube or on a platform that lets you leave comments or just go to YouTube, let me know. I'm curious how many people like would wait for all of them to come out and then listen to them all at once or actually follow along week by week. Anyways, definitions. So number one, the first definition, the definition of adequate. Something is adequate in whose effect can be distinctly perceived by means of the cause. Inadequate is something not fully understood by a cause. So an adequate thing, unadequate thing, is a thing that we fully understand by its cause. Whereas an inadequate thing, we don't fully understand. We don't exactly know how it arrives from a cause. Second definition, an act. An act or to act is when we are the cause of something in us or outside of us. So we suffer when something in hap happens in us or by us that isn't our full intent or that stops us from being able to act, to exist in the world, to move in space, to think in our mind. And the third and final definition here, emotion. Emotions are body modifications that help hinder, increase, or diminish the power of acting. And all of this centers on this question of acting, permitting humans to move and think, to be able to do these things freely as well. So if we are the adequate cause of these modifications, that is, we are the we, we cause the thing and that thing is directly attributable to us. If we are the adequate cause of these modifications as uh, of emotions, then emotions are an action. If we aren't the full cause, the emotion is instead a passive state. So if we work to permit some emotions more than others, we are doing so by our own will. We are permitting it according to our own will. Whereas if we are affected by emotions that we are not the cause, like in the case of depression, something that seems to come from outside of us, then that is actually inhibiting our power of action. And it removes us from actually living our most fulfilled lives, which isn't something like you can't just, you know, lay claim over depression or just overcome it. Like that's not possible. Uh, and, and instead, <laughs> actually, it's very much, it's, it's impossible. But the point here for him being that in those cases, people are suffering from an affliction that should be treated like and that we are developing more and more means to actually treat uh, now. Into our postulates. Postulate number one. There's only two. We only have two postulates. Postulate number one. The human body can be affected in many ways that affect its capacity for acting. So many different things can affect our capacity for acting whether it be to increase our power of acting, to act, or decrease our power to act. Second postulate, the human body can suffer and can be left with physical marks or mental images or mental scars, if you will. And this is really trauma he's talking about here. And this is like, 
I don't agree with everything Spinoza says, but really at the time, like this stuff was really radical. He was really laying out some important uh, building blocks to what we know as psychology, what we know about trauma. Spinoza was very much aware that what happens to us mentally is as important as what happens to us physically. We are not only limited in our powers by virtue of being hurt physically, but also hurt mentally and how we have to protect people's mental states. We have to create situations in which people do not feel like they'll uh, be able to express themselves properly or feel like they'll be, they'll be mentally threatened in certain spaces. So, for example, in one of his other texts, the politico-theological one, which I don't know if anyone's listening this far, let me know if I should cover it. But in it, he has this point where he's talking about freedom of speech that he defends wholeheartedly but also acknowledges that clearly clearly there has to be limits on this and any reasonable reasonable person would acknowledge that you can't yell fire in a movie theater you know you can't uh say a racial slur and so on so these are conversations that he was putting forward 500 years ago or 400 years ago that people can be affected by words you know words do things words hurt and it's important to acknowledge that. And here we get into our propositions. So proposition one, when our mind has adequate ideas, we act or we are acting in that moment. When it has inadequate ideas, we suffer. So if we have, if we have an idea that resonates with God and nature, we are acting. If an idea conflicts with others in nature, in those moments where God contains not the mind of one human only, but also together with this, the idea of other things, then the person suffers. So if there's a contradiction in what we are imagining, like let's say uh, an example I gave in a previous episode was about an architect. An architect designs a house. So they've developed an idea and it has a real possibility in uh, in space, in in outside of their minds in the world. However, if the plans for this idea are bad, then we cannot adequately attribute ourselves as being the cause of a true idea or a proper idea. We have instead only developed a confused idea. And so in that case, we are actually suffering. We are actually limiting our capacity for action as it resonates with nature and with nature's properties, like the laws of physics, like knowing how to properly distribute the weight in, you know, whatever it is you're building, a house or whatever. Proposition number two, because mind and body are of different godly attributes, so we know that the mind is an attribute, uh, is an, a, essentially a modification of God's infinite attribute of thought, and space or the body is um, part of extension or, or space. Because we know that they are different godly attributes, they do not affect and produce actions in the other. So they are separate. So we can sleepwalk is the example that he gives. Ultimately, we don't fully know the relationship between the mind and the body. So in the case of sleepwalking, what we see is people's bodies doing things without their minds. And there are often cases in which the mind is operating without the body, which is very interesting uh, this is his, obviously, this is Descartes' inspiration on Spinoza, but Spinoza is not like giving one primacy over the other. 
He's instead acknowledging that these are very different things. Uh, even if you like reduce us to the most material possible, in the most material possible sense, we we still struggle with certain things like consciousness and understanding perception, understanding the relationship of our understanding of the world in our minds and our body's ability to act in the world. How do we have these conceptions of space and time? How do we have perceptions? Are all of our perceptions different? If they are, what does that say about reality? And I'm maybe going a little further in this point than I need to, but I think you get it. Okay, postulate or proposition number three. Actions arise from adequate ideas, passive states from inadequate ones. So again, here, thinking about like the architecture example, only in cases where an action comes from an adequate idea, is it actually uh, good for us? Is it actually going to improve and increase our capacity for acting? Whereas, you know, uh, we will only arrive at passive states from inadequate ideas or from confused ideas. Proposition number four, an o a thing can only be destroyed by an external cause. A thing can never really destroy itself, which raises a number of interesting questions, especially if you consider things like self-harm, where in many cases self-harm is something that is uh, a way to reclaim an identity that has been taken away from people, in, in not in every case, but of course in some cases. So I wonder how that would uh, connect here, because I imagine he would view that as being a kind of destruction, actually happening from within, not coming from without you know someone who's who is dismissive of self-harm might say like oh yeah it's because these people suffer from some kind of mental affliction then they have to be treated for it they have been essentially poisoned by some impurity in society and they need to be corrected or they need to be rehabilitated or whatever but anyways his point being that a thing always strives towards its own self-preservation and it will only be destroyed if an external force acts upon it. Proposition number five. If one thing is able to destroy something, they can't exist in the same thing. So it would be absurd if something contained its own destructive capacity. So you might think, yeah, my immediate thought was to think of um, Hal from the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey that has contained within it the like possibility to have it self-destruct or shut down. But in that case, we could just attribute this to these being two uh, very different mechanisms created from without. Hal did not create the possibility for its own undoing. But the idea being that if something works against you, it won't actually be part of your essence. It would have to be something exterior to you. Proposition number six, each thing endeavors to preserve its being. So everything opposes that which could negate its existence in Spinoza's terms. Clear enough. Number seven, any effort of preservation is nothing but the actual essence of the thing itself. So this extends beyond preservation really to all endeavors. But his point here is illuminating and it's one that isn't highlighted quite as much in his text, especially in his discussion of essence itself, where here he was saying that one element of essence is the desire for self-preservation. This is like your reason for living is to self-preserve. It's a little bit of um, a base 
understanding of essence because if that's all that essence was that'd be pretty sad i mean if spinoza actually believed that the only reasons humans lived is to self-preserve then that would be a sad existence i don't think he actually thinks that but this is just one component of essence for him number eight preservation is done according to indefinite time not finite time so what he's saying is that we live with the assumption of our longevity to infinity if assuming no external cause played a part. So we, we live as though we don't die. We don't want to die. We want to keep living forever. And it is only because of external forces from gravity, from exposure to air, from stuff we eat, that our bodies begin to, uh, with the passage of time, which is external to us, some might say and with this we see uh the body deteriorate not and and our really ourselves deteriorate it's not something we necessarily want number nine the mind has both adequate and inadequate ideas but always tries to preserve itself no matter what so this is to say that if the mind ignores the body hypothetically if the mind just like was like i don't care about the body whatever, its efforts of self-preservation are called will, the will. If it includes the body, so if it doesn't just detach itself from the body, this is called appetite, the essence of humans, which promote their preservation. Now, appetite is this um, driving self-preservation in the unity of mind and body which is the essence of humans. And he qualifies that desire within this framework here. Desire refers to appetites that the person is aware of. So not just appetites that, you know, we, we have without necessarily being aware of them, but things that we do in order to sustain ourselves that we must do to stay alive. And what he says of this is that we don't pursue things because they're innately good, but are good because we strive for, wish, seek, or desire it. So here he introduces appetites, desires, and he's not saying that any of the things that we actually strive for are good in themselves. He says they are good because we strive for them, we desire them, they form part of our appetite or are the object of our appetite. And so in this case, they have value precisely because they resonate with our capacity to act and to preserve and sustain ourselves. Number 10, no idea in the mind can exclude the body's existence. So like before where the mind left the body, like purely hypothetical, Spinoza doesn't actually believe that the mind can just satisfy its own will. Remember, because if it's just the mind alone, that's will not appetite or desire, the mind can never actually fully do that without including the body's existence. So in his words, the first thing belonging to our mind is the effort to affirm the existence of our body, because if the body went away, so too would the mind. Number 11. If anything increases or diminishes our body's power of action, the idea of that thing will have same effect on the mind. So I don't know if uh if i know being i don't want to give like a traumatic example like um if i am playing basketball and i roll my ankle 
and it limits my body's capacity for action because my ankle hurts thinking about that thing will like make me wince my i don't like thinking about it and in that moment my mind is actually limited in its own capacity for action so it's important and this is something we've already mentioned but the mind grows as the body experiences things so they are connected in that way and so if a bad thing happens to our body we you know this is how people become traumatized mental scars will remain in their minds and so i might not want to play basketball again even though my ankle has been or i mean my real example is that i injured my knees pretty badly playing basketball and it actually deterred me from playing for a long time my my like my knees felt better but i was still like in my mind like no i can't do that so i was limiting myself and this isn't i when i frame it this way i'm not saying it as though i can just overcome it by saying I, i'm limiting myself like it's my fault i don't have any power of this his point being that we can be affected by things externally to us and they have effects both on our physical body and our mind all right proposition 12 the mind strives to imagine things that optimize the body's power of acting so that is to say that mind and body are connected and the mind strives to focus on those things that resonate with the body and allow the body to keep acting. So we'll think happy thoughts. We'll think things that will allow the body to move more freely without any restrictions. Fair enough. Uh, proposition 13. If the mind imagines things that hinder the body's ability to act or that hinder the body, it will do what it can to exclude the existence of those things in the imagination. So if I hurt my knee playing basketball, if I want to play basketball again, I'm going to not think about the possible injury that might befall me as a way for me to actually play the game. So in this case, what it will do is replace those thoughts with others. So in his words, love is nothing but joy accompanied with the idea of an external cause and hatred is nothing but sorrow with the accompanying idea of an external cause. So you love something like an external cause and joy is what you feel. Hatred is when you hate something and sorrow is what you feel. So if you hate something, you don't want to be around it. You have closed off your possible engagement with something. You have therefore closed off part of your capacity for acting. Proposition 14. If the mind has ever been affected by two or more emotions, when later affected by any, it will recall the others. So if I ever experience two things mentally, later on, if I experience one of those things, I'll recall the other thing that I'd first experienced it with. Because we have, you know, we have these tight uh, mental connections that we form. At least I, I don't know anything about that from a psychological point of view or neurological point of view maybe but i think that the point is sound proposition 15 anything may may be accidentally the cause of joy sorrow or desire so joy is when acting is permitted joy is good sorrow is when acting is uh limited and we know desire is when humans are aware of their um their needs for self-preservation that accord to both or that unify both come from the unity of both the mind and the body. 
So anything may be accidentally the cause of joy, sorrow, or desire. His point being that we might be affected by more than one emotion, even if both uh, good, even if both are good, that confuse us and that can produce sorrow in us. Proposition 16. If an emotion resembles one we know to produce joy or sorrow, like a, you know, I'm feeling ecstatic or feeling, feeling excited, that produces joy. Feeling sad, that produces sorrow. If an emotion resembles one we know to produce either joy or sorrow, the resemblance will produce the same effect. So this is accidental, like even if it's not the actual thing we are experiencing again, but something that resembles it, we will feel the same way. Uh, but it's still, like it's still affective, we are still feeling the same thing. Number 17, if something elicits joy that resembles something that elicits sorrow, we will both love and hate it. And he calls this the vacillation of the mind. So something that we really like looks like something we don't like, then we'll be, you know, we, we like if there's the most delicious cake you've ever eaten, but it's designed to look like, like mud or I don't know. Um, rotting fruit you you're gonna it's gonna be a weird experience eating that cake it's gonna taste good but you're just gonna you're not gonna want to so there's gonna be this weird feeling that you have this is the vacillation of the mind number 18 someone will be affected by previous image so with joy or sorrow or whatever as much as the present image so any image of a thing past or present will be thought as present when we recall an image of something, it may as well have happened that very moment. It will be as real to us and have a similar effect on us as if it was present. So if you, number 19, if you imagine what you love to be destroyed, you will sorrow, you will feel sorrow. If preserved, you will rejoice, you will feel happy. So this is it's pretty obvious. Number 20. If what one hates is destroyed, they will rejoice. Obvious. If something you don't like is destroyed, you will feel good. 21. Imagining a loved thing experiencing joy or sorrow will produce that in us uh, proportionally to the amount experienced in the thing loved. So if you have a romantic partner or if you have an animal you love or a parent or any anyone that you love, uh, a very good fr a friend, anything... If they are happy, you will feel happy. I hope. If you didn't, then I don't know what that means, but it feels like it's not good. Um, number 22. If someone makes a loved one feel joy, uh, you will feel you will experience love toward them. And if the opposite, that will elicit sorrow or you'll feel that towards them. So if someone hurts the person you love, you will not like them. If someone makes the person you love happy, then you will like them, which I don't know. Like, I, I think that in a lot of cases, that's certainly true. But in a lot of cases, especially where jealousy, like let's take monogamous relationships, for example, in these types of settings, often jealousy will uh, create an environment in which people try to control their partner. And any moment that they see their partner getting joy from anyone else, they will feel angry because it's not them giving joy, which is something that takes a lot of undoing in our, you know, 
heteropatriarchal monogamous world, but I'm sure no one wants to hear these terms talking about Spinoza, but welcome to this channel with David, in case that's a shock to you. Number 23. If something we hate feels joy, we will feel sorrow. If they feel sorrow, we will feel joy. That is proportionally both, or inverse, proportionally. The idea being if someone we don't like feels joy, we're going to be mad that they're happy. And if they feel sorrow, we're going to be, we're going to be happy, obvious enough. Number 24. If something makes something we hate feel joy or someone we hate feel joy, we won't like that thing or person that makes the person we hate feel joy. And then the same thing for the reverse. Seems obvious enough. Number 25. We strive to affirm those things that give us or our beloved objects joy and negate those things that produce sorrow. So we want to cultivate spaces and relationships that make everyone around us feel joy and uh, get rid of those things or not surround ourselves with things or people that make us or our, the uh, things we surround ourselves with, the people we surround ourselves with feel sorrow. Number 26, if we hate something, we will affirm everything that gives it sorrow and negate everything that gives it joy, which is like, you could also feel, I don't know, it just, I don't know, you let me know what you think. I don't, I don't agree with all this, but in any case, Apparently, if you hate something, you kind of want to see it die for Spinoza, but eh, maybe the type of hate he's describing is just like so extreme that it's not something I've ever experienced, but maybe he knows, um, I don't know. 27. Whether we have been drawn to something emotionally or not, if that thing is like us, we are similarly affected if it is hurt or feels joy or whatever. So if we imagine anyone who is like ourselves to be affected with any emotion, this imagination will express a modification of our body or within our body like that emotion. We will feel similarly. 28. We strive to bring into existence all that brings joy and remove all that brings sorrow. Obvious enough. Now, we're going to be shifting here with 29 and here we're going to be talking more about what like common people enjoy instead of maybe more this more abstract discussion that we've been doing so far so it's just a little bit of a shift but it's it's important to kind of acknowledge this so 29 so again here we're talking more about common people 29 uh so we shall encourage what gives men joy and remove that which brings sorrow. Obvious, and obvious enough. 30. If someone does something that gives others joy, that will, they will feel joy at being the cause of joy. If it gives others sorrow, we will feel sorrow. If we make someone happy, we'll feel happy. If we make someone sad, we'll feel sad. At least, I hope. So, he adds here that we must be wary of prideful people who imagine they are pleasing people when in reality they are harming others. So... Like so many cases in which there's people who think that they're doing wonders for the world, but actually are doing bad things or making people laugh, uh, you know, by saying messed up stuff, like so many of those comedians that uh, proliferate today. 31. If someone loves or hates a thing that we love or hate, 
our feeling towards the thing will intensify. If person has different feeling than us, we shall then suffer a vacillation of the mind. So if a person that you love loves the same thing you do, you will feel extra love for that thing. However, if someone you love does not like something that you love, you will experience this vacillation of the mind, this confusion, like eating a cake that looks like rotten fruit. You will be confused. So, it's, yeah, easy enough. 32. If someone loves something that is scarce, we will try and take it for ourselves. So, in this case, he acknowledges that we get envious of what others have if we do not have that thing. So something that is scarce that we might like, we really want to have it so that someone else doesn't take it from us. 33. If we love something that is like us, we try to make it love us as well. So we try to inject it with joy that it will associate with us, or they will associate with us, which, I don't know, dial it back if it's Spinoza. If they don't like you, leave them alone. Simple as that. 34. The greater love thing feels towards us, the greater we will feel about ourselves. So if we love something that loves us back, the better we will feel about ourselves. 35. If something we love loves someone else or something else as much or greater than ourselves, we will have hatred towards that thing and envy towards them for their ability to draw the attention of that person or thing that we love, which is, he's just describing that this is jealousy. This is the vacillation as well between love and hate. It doesn't need to be that way, Spinoza, though. You can, you know, you can let love, you know, don't think you can be the only one to satisfy one other person's all of their wants and desires and drives. There are other people out there. Many fish in the sea, Spinoza. 36. If we remember something we once desired, we try to retain that same desire toward that thing. So this is like longing. We, we, we want to preserve that desire. 37. Desire from sorrow or joy. Desire, desire from joy. To remove or preserve a thing. This is proportional to sorrow or to the joy felt. Wow, I would normally just edit this out. I, I, I read my notes so poorly there. Let me re-say that. Just You just get a blooper. So desire from sorrow or joy, which is desire to remove or preserve something, this is proportional to sorrow or joy felt. If we feel a lot of sadness, a lot of sorrow, we will try harder to remove that, the bad thing, uh, to get rid of it, or vice versa with joy, we will try to preserve it. So because sorrow limits action, and technically, but also elevates the drive to remove sorrow. So Sorrow is by definition for Spinoza, a feeling that reduces our capacity for action. However, it does increase our capacity for action in some ways, in the form of trying to remove that one thing. But in that moment, we are not seeing an intensified capacity for action. We are at like as a broad understanding of action, but really a specific instance of it that is hyper-focused on this one thing which is actually uh, regressive for us. It's bad for us, for Spinoza. 38. We hate those things more that we once loved versus those things we never loved. So if 
we, we once loved something, but it turned against us, we will feel more strongly towards it than something that we never loved. 39. If someone hates somebody else, they will do evil to them unless the other person can respond with a greater evil. So like deterrence. If you fear that the person will be able to retaliate against you in a greater way than you can hurt them, you won't want to hurt them. Which this also informs Spinoza's understanding of states and of nations, legislative bodies. He feels that this is what is necessary to keep people from just living in a, yes, like, a, what's the state of nature, like the Hobbes thing, uh, to live in a state of nature. We need a monolithic system, like a state, that will punish people if they do wrong, which, say what you will about that, that's what he believes, but we see that coming out here. You know, you won't do harm against someone if you feel like the punishment will exceed the amount of harm you will be able to inflict. 40. If we know, or if someone hates us without reason, we will hate them. If we know why and we agree, we will feel shame instead of hatred. Like if I've done something wrong, if I accidentally um, tripped someone, I didn't mean to, and they don't like me for it, like I will feel shame. I won't hate them because I know it's my fault. Like I did something wrong. I don't know why that was the example I gave. Apparently, I like to trip people or do this often. In any case, this is a specific feeling of shame, not hatred in those instances. Now, in number 41, we see a little bit of a, a difference here. In the case of someone loving us without reason, we will love them back. We will feel pride at this, which is quite egotistical. There's a lot of hubris in this statement. In that if someone loves me without reason, I'm going to be immediately suspicious of that in that I'm I'm not going to be totally prepared to, to just love them back. Like I have no idea what the intentions are if it's not known to me, but maybe maybe I'm too suspicious or maybe I'm not trusting enough. But in any case, 42, if we do something out of love for something we love and they don't appreciate it, we will be sad. So if we do something nice for someone and they don't appreciate it, we'll be sad. Simple enough. 43. Hatred increases hatred, but may be destroyed by love, but may be, not maybe, but may be destroyed by love. You can destroy hatred with love. Feels like something you'd see on like a Facebook post, but it, I think he's right. 44. Hatred defeated by love produces a love greater than if hatred had not preceded it which is, I think, an interesting qualification here. So his point is that our rejoicement, the feeling of relief and gratification will be added to the love we experience if this love has conquered hatred. However, this can't be forced. I, you know, I can't choose to hate something with the explicit purpose of wanting to love it at the end of the day and I'm just creating an artificial hatred, and then I'm going to come in with a lot of love and feel even stronger towards it. This has to be a more organic thing for Spinoza. 45. If someone hates something that we love, we shall hate that person. Unless we happen to already love that person, and then we will experience that vacillation of the mind that we mentioned earlier. Seems obvious enough. 46. If someone from a specific class or nation makes us feel sorrow, 
or joy. We will also feel that way to that class or nation. Just like, my God, can you imagine? Like, it's just ironic because this philosophy is also coming out at the time when we are ostensibly going to begin embracing enlightenment ideals in which we put emphasis on individuals, not on these archaic structures like nations, like religions, like families, anything like that. It's about individuals where you will be judged how you act as a person, not on which class or group you belong to. But clearly Spinoza still has his foot in these beliefs that someone can stand in for their entire nation, that can stand in for their entire class, which I assume can extend to race as well. Religion, which is obviously problematic, but that's what he gives us. 47? 47. If we imagine something we hate be destroyed, we will feel some sorrow. So we can't totally remove a feeling caused by memory because, you know, we hated the thing. And even if that thing gets destroyed, if we think of it again, we will feel sad. We will still feel sorrow, I should say. I should say. That won't ever fully go away. 48. Our love or hatred towards something will change if we learn they aren't actually the cause of our joy or sorrow. It's obvious enough. We, we're proven wrong. And then it's like, oh, okay, I don't actually feel that way towards that person or anything. 49. The more we perceive something or someone to be free and not necessary, the more we love or hate them for being the sole cause of joy or sorrow. So maybe like, a fam family member versus a friend like a family member w apparently will have an obligation to love you unconditionally a friend maybe not I, I mean this maybe a weak example but depending on whether or not that person feels obligated to love you will determine our feelings towards them in cases where they hate you if they're seen as being free acting according to absolutely absolutely their own will or as not being necessary then we'll feel a certain way to them if they do something wrong than if the other case was the case. Number 50. Anything may be accidentally the cause either of hope uh, or of fear. So these are good or bad omens for Spinoza. He calls them omens. Something might be accidentally be the cause of hope or fear. You know, it depends really on the moment all, and all other factors as well. 51. Different people respond to things in different ways. Same person will have different feelings towards same thing at different times. Seems obvious enough. 52. If we associate an object with others, then we won't be able to contemplate what is specific to it. So if we think of something, but we always attach that thing with other things, we're going to have a difficult time actually understanding that thing in isolation on its own. 53. When the mind contemplates its own power of acting, it celebrates, it rejoices in proportion to the distinctness with which it imagines itself and its power of action. So this is compounded if others look at us and our mind with approval as a source of joy. So when the mind looks at itself and its power of acting and, you know, it's like, wow, this is, this is amazing. It rejoices. It feels good. 54. The mind endeavors to imagine those things only which posit its power of acting. 
So the mind's essence only affirms what it is able to do and not that which it cannot do. It's not interested in exploring those avenues because why? Why would I explore like anything that would limit my capacity for action? Of course, I want to foster a space and a mind, a mind frame that will allow me to act without restriction. 55. When the mind imagines its own weakness, it necessarily sorrows. So it's going to feel limited in its capacity for action. 56. There are as many kinds of emotions as there are objects that affect us, which is very interesting. Because when you think of it, like, there are, there are so few emotions, but there are so many different objects and there's so many ways to be affected by things. And this is partly due to, and I think we've already talked about this in Spinoza, but this is partly due to us just trying to make our lives easy. We use language and we clump things together. We, we say many different things give us joy, like chocolate bars give me joy, um, uh, parties give me joy. But these are two very different things, but we use one word to describe them and we associate it with one feeling. And I wonder how much of that is actually because we are feeling one thing from these two different things or just because we've clumped them together and that has a kind of, that has limited our capacity to feel to some extent. And maybe it's part of our condition as uh, linguistic beings. We filter our relationship through language and through our efforts to organize, to compartmentalize different feelings through language to really clump things together that might be limiting us but in any case his point is that there are as many different kinds of emotions as there are objects that affect us so love for object a may differ from love for object b but we might still call them love like the feeling is love 57 emotions differ between people just as their essences differ so insofar as our essence is geared toward our acting, our ability to act and to foster that ability to which joy or sorrow mark its intensification, joy will intensify our power of acting, sorrow will limit it, or uh, sorry, each person will approach them differently according to their desire to act. So someone might have a stronger desire to act. They might be put in a situation in which acting is going to be more important for their self-preservation than another person or whatever. 58. Joy and sorrow are passive because they are products of ability or inability to act, but can also be attached to the capacity to act. So when we think of an adequate idea, we are acting through thought, and we, we really feel joy. So his point here is that sorrow and joy are consequences, they are effects of our ability to act or to not act. 59. All emotions born out of out of a mind, out of our mind's capacity to act, are related to joy or desire. So not sorrow, because sorrow is when we are limited in acting, not when uh, acting is possible. Now this part, part three that you know that we're talking about here, we just finished our the propositions just ended. Now he gives us the definitions of emotions, and I've deliberately kept it like this because it's a very interesting thing, the way that this, this part is organized. 
it would seem as though he should have started with a definition of the emotions because we've talked you know i'm going to present them all and you might think like well we are talked about that it would have been helpful to have the definition so like i think it, and normally in cases where i feel like i should mention something from later on earlier to help give you a good se- a, like a more um a better sense of what's going on in this case i didn't because i was just so i just thought it was so mysterious that he decided to put this at the end um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he didn't, and maybe an editor mixed them around. I, I don't really know the deep history of producing this text, but I'd love to know if someone had thoughts on it because it's really interesting. So let's go through each of the emotions, our definitions. Desire. Desire for Spinoza is the essence of humans towards any action through modification. Joy. Liberated and optimized desire so you remember desire i should explain you remember how desire was when there is the unison the unity of mind and body and their appetites are guided by one another but the person is aware of those appetites what the person wants it's not just like oh i have to eat for the sake of like keeping my mind and body alive it's like oh no i want to eat this specific thing and and this specific thing is going to you know produce the most joy. It's the thing I want. This is desire. So joy is liberated and optimized desire. So if I get the thing that I want, like to a T, the amount of joy I experience is going to be higher than if I got the thing I wanted, but maybe it was undercooked or something, you know, just, but it's still good. So there will be different degrees of joy here. So, so far, our definitions, we have desire and joy. Now sorrow. This is diminished desire. If our desire goes away, we're kind of going to be left an empty shell that doesn't want to act. Then, astonishment. Astonishment is imagination of object unlike others, fixing our minds on it. So it's something that is totally unique and it seduces us. Then there's contempt. Contempt is a lack of appeal for an object that causes the mind to think of other things. You know, you'll think about something you actually like. Love? Love is joy with accompanying idea of external cause, a thing that you love. Hatred? Hatred is sorrow from an external cause. Inclination? Inclination is joy with something being an accidental cause. So, and we... We feel this inclination towards this thing. Maybe we're not sure. Will it give us this love or this joy the next time? Who knows? We'll see. Aversion. Aversion is sorrow with something being an accidental cause. I have an aversion to certain kinds of food or like something I want to avoid. Maybe that thing won't actually make me feel sorrow next time. Devotion. Devotion is love towards an object which astonishes us. So remember astonishment is when is that thing that's totally unique we are devoted to something or devotion here is love towards something what that is like totally unique and it compels us like it seduces us through its uniqueness through through it astonishing us being standing above the rest really like a shining star devotion uh no sorry derision derision is joy from idea that something we despise is present in object we hate so we get um, 
you know, we see that there's something not good within something we already don't like. So that's derision. Or it's like the knowledge of almost feeling happy as a result. Like there's like a dual suffering. Like, oh, the, this these things I don't like can hang out together. That's fine. They'll, they'll make each other suffer. Hope. Hope is non-constant joy produced by doubtful thing. Like, who knows if it will persist. Fear. Fear is the non-constant sorrow produced by doubtful thing. So I'm scared of the dark, which is true. I'm, I'm scared of the dark, but there's nothing in the dark that's going to hurt me. Maybe one day I will be hurt in the dark, but I, I don't know. I still feel fear, though. Confidence. Confidence is joy from object that is not doubtful. So... The thing is not like, uh, not in the case of hope where it's doubtful or it's accidental. Confidence is when we know for sure. Despair is sorrow from object that is not doubtful. Despair is when we know something is going to hurt us. And that thing is always going to hurt us and we feel sorrow because of it. Gladness. Gladness is joy from something unanticipated. It surprises us. It's like, oh, I'm, that's great. I'm happy that happened. I mean, this is fantastic. Remorse is sorrow caused by something unanticipated, like the opposite of gladness, just with, or like gladness, but just with sorrow, making us feel sad. Remorse. Remorse is sorrow from something unanticipated, so very much like something mentioned earlier. <laughs> uh, yeah. Commiseration now. Sorrow from evil having been brought on someone like us. So someone we identifying with, we identify with feeling sad or sorrow. Favor is love for those who have benefited others. So we like people who are good to others. Indignation, hatred towards those who have injured others. Overestimation, thinking too highly of something because of our love of it. And then contempt, again, and I put question marks all through my, my notes, Thinking, uh, thinking tool, or thinking too little, Jesus, Th I won't cut that out either. Thinking too little of something because of our hate. So this is like contempt 2.0, thinking too little of something because of our hatred for it. Envy, hatred that produces gladness when envied person suffers and sadness when envied person thrives. We feel happy when they suffer and sad when they thrive. Compassion. Love that makes us happy when other is happy and sad when they're sad. Compassion, that's, yeah, we know that. Self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction is joy from contemplating ourselves and our power of action. We feel self-satisfied. Humility is sorrow from something of our helplessness and impotence. Repentance. Repentance is sorrow from something done by us freely. Pride. Pride is thinking too much of ourselves through self-love. Despondency is thinking too little of ourselves through sorrow. Self-exaltation is joy from the thought of one of our actions being praised by others. Where shame is sorrow from thought of one of our actions being praised by others. Or being disliked by others, I should say. Regret is desire for something that produced joy, but whose memory is distracted by memory 
and pursual of other things. Emulation is copying what we believe noble, pleasant, or useful. Gratitude is love to do good to others who have done good to us. Benevolence is desire to do good to those we pity. Anger is desire to hurt those whom we hate. Vengeance is desire to injure those who have hurt us out of hate. Cruelty is desire to injure those we love or pity. Fear, again, desire to avoid the greater of two dreaded evils by the lesser, or choose, choosing the lesser one. Audacity is desire to do something that are equals fear. Pulsillanimous, uh, pulsillanimous as opposed to audacity, is a lack of desire to do something our equals do. Consternation is desire to avoid something, but that also intrigues us. Courtesy, doing things that please people and removing things people do not like. Ambition is a moderate desire of glory. Luxuriousness is a moderate, immoderate desire of good living. Drunkenness, immoderate desire of drinking or love of drinking. Avarice, immoderate desire of riches or greed. Lust, immoderate desire of sex. And that wraps up part three. Um, yeah, I know it's like just a list. I'm, it's probably boring to listen to, but uh, you know, it's interesting stuff. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe, leave a review if you happen to be allowed to on whatever platform you listen on. If there's anything I got wrong or excluded, I'd love to hear from it. You can go find me on any other platform or help me out monetarily if you want. Links for all these things in all the descriptions. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time. Take care.